I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman. I'm joined by James Diamond. Hello. Jerry McCauley. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. Uh, this week we are inducting our second member into the Corridor of Praise behind Harrison Ford. Uh, more on who it is later. We'll keep you, we'll keep you dangling on our hooks there. Um, but first we'll Starts off with our usual what we have been watching. Um, and myself and Jerry have both watched Zero Dark Thirty, so it's probably best to start off with that. Uh, Jerry, why don't you introduce us? Because I've been talking for 45 seconds. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, everyone's sick of your voice already, Steve. Um, Zero Dark Thirty, new film by the director of The Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow. A brother of, uh, uh, sister of Juice Bigelow, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's she's the um, the older, slightly classier sibling, yeah. I think. Damaged um, by her brother's reputation, I think it's a, a, a cross for her to bear. And with this and The Hurt Locker, she's slowly moving out of his shadow. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting as well that she's she. I didn't realize she was Cameron's uh, ex-wife as well, James Cameron's ex-wife. You didn't. You've been. You've not been sarcastic there, Jerry. You didn't realize that. No, I, I don't give a fuck who's married to who. Oh no, but um, the 2010 Oscars was this massive thing because it was Avatar versus the Hurt Locker, and it was ex-wife versus ex-husband, and uh, and she won because you know, whatever you think it's Hurt Locker, it's better than Avatar. Do you not read Heat, Jerry? <laughs> well, what you're suggesting is that for some reason I would care whether Avatar was better than The Hurt Locker. I know, but it was an, it was the Oscar ceremony. It was an, see, I don't actively search out this kind of celebrity gossip, believe sure, it or not, uh, sure. for someone who cries at every film he goes to see. But you, you couldn't avoid it. I, I'm, I'm just shocked that you avoided that knowledge. Well, until this year, I didn't really read anything about the Oscars until the uh, either I read the nomination list and then I read the winners list. I didn't really read uh, anything for around. All right then, okay. No one surprised that stuff. It's it's still no um Gary Oldman big Mo kind of. Bring out another fact of that level. Yeah, no, I it's, don't it's think, not up there, but I it's don't, still pretty. I don't know, think there is another movie family fact of that level. I think that's as big as it gets. Yeah. Anyway, zero. So, yeah, zero. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, uh, we always get onto Gary Oldman a little and, and yeah. big Mo. I don't know how, but we always do. Um, it's the story of. Basically, the 10 years, I think about 10 years, um, spent trying to hunt down and kill Osama bin Laden by a particular CIA agent. Don't spoil the ending. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
played by uh, is it Jessica Jessica, Jessica Chastain? Chastain. Yeah. yeah, who is in The Help? Um, she was very good in The Help. I really liked The Help. Um, and Lawless, which we reviewed last last year. Yeah, um, and it's also got um, quite a few good cameos in it. I'm trying to think, going through. Um, you know, there's there's little cheeky cameos for Joel Edgerton turns up later on. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I suppose James Gandolfini's a bit too big to be a cameo. He's not in it a lot, but it's probably. I'm still classic cameo. Yeah, I got yeah. quite excited when I saw Scott Adkins was in it. He's someone I think is actually a rising star in action films, so I was quite chuffed to see him in it. Um, John Barrowman threw me completely. Oh <laughs> yeah, John Barrowman of, of Doctor Who companion fame and has done more than one series of variety shows on BBC One at like six yeah. o'clock in the evening on a Saturday. He and, did movie show for a bit, and, I remember. And, uh, he took over from Philip Schofield on the movie show and, as well. And, long, he, long time and he's extreme. When he's not in character, he's extremely camp. And to see mm. him in that just blew my mind a bit. I was just what? Aww. What's going on here? Um, there was also <laughs> Mark Strong, was in it? Yeah, Mark Strong was very good in that. Uh, fans of Safety Aren't Guaranteed will have been thrilled to spot Mark Duplass as in it. As yes. Well. Yes, yeah, Mark Duplass, and yeah, and Chris Pratt, who was Jason Siegel's brother in the five-year engagement last mm. year, and also yeah. um, is in Parks and Recreation. So it's it's a big cast. I've seen it. Have you seen it as well, Owen? Yeah, uh, yeah is this what is this one that all of us have seen? Oh, interesting. Okay, oh, yeah, it's a rarity these days. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's not even a main review. Goodness <laughs> me. Um, well, 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 what were everyone's thoughts then? I enjoyed it. I liked it more than the Hurt Locker, which I couldn't really get into. I don't know why. Maybe. I wasn't really paying attention. Maybe I wasn't in the mood when I tried to watch The Hurt Locker, but I tried to watch it and just didn't get into it. But I really did get quite into uh, Zero Dark Thirty and, and enjoyed it for pretty much the most part. I, I actually um, watched uh, The Hurt Locker immediately after this because when I, it was on TV later that night, um, on Saturday night, and I hadn't seen The Hurt Locker before because... Mm. Basically, everyone told me it was, you know, the worst film to win the Best Picture Oscar since Crash. So, never bothered with it, really. <laughs> um, I mean, Crash is a lot worse. Face Crash competition is... from Avatar that year, which says a lot, you know. Um, but I actually preferred The Hurt Locker to Zero Dark Thirty, I think. Okay. And I didn't like The Hurt Locker that much. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I, uh, the way I was looking at it, um, there was a lot of it which was just bloated and unnecessary really this film before it got bogged down for quite a while a lot of stuff that didn't really add much the characters didn't feel great I must say you know her character for the main character it, it was a bit one dimensional we didn't really you know we don't know much about her we don't really get drawn into her, her motivations at all and so you know the way she suddenly gets galvanised into you know being motivated by certain things shall we say felt mm. very false because those you know relationships weren't built anyway um and i and then the end scene the raid which i don't think you can really have a spoiler alert in this film um, unless you were like mr bin laden living in a cave for a while um the end raid was absolutely fantastic that was really well done and it was gripping and i think that pulled it up a bit but i think overall it was just a bit average and i don't understand how it's got nominated for stuff i i'll be honest i liked it um, I thought what I did like about it is it treated its audience with a measure of intelligence in the fact that it didn't dumb down any of its language 
um, I struggled at times to keep up with it. And you kind of had to know a little bit about some of the, because they, they'd reel off a load of names of suspected terrorists and they wouldn't really give you much context. Um, and you had to try and remember hearing those names on the news. But I, I, to be honest, I, I've got no problem with a film that treats its audience as if it is intelligent and has an interest in current affairs. I think that should be applauded. I agree with you. Some of the pacing was off, especially in the first half. It, it kind of, I couldn't help comparing it to Argo. Uh, they're two very different films, but essentially they're, they're made of the same DNA. And Argo, I felt, w- was better at um, creating tension in a story where you kind of already knew what was going to happen. I found myself mm. thinking that earlier as well. I, I was thinking, do you know what? If Affleck had done this in the same way that he made Argo, I think there would have been a lot more because... It would have been half an hour shorter. <laughs> it would and I think as much as anything, you, you watch... It's a real-life story, and you watch cinema for drama and something, you know, that isn't just plodding real life and I didn't feel like it was particularly entertaining for a lot of it I mean I didn't feel like I'd been cheated out of my time mm. I didn't dislike it but at the same time I thought it was just a very average middling film it didn't tell me too much that was new it didn't entertain me massively I didn't identify particularly with the characters and Jessica Chastain's got nominated for like best actress and stuff hasn't she yeah I, I am why surprised at that I thought, I thought she was good, but I thought there were, I thought there were plenty of better performances last year that showed a lot more range and depth. I don't think she did anything wrong. And I I think she was good as Maya. I just don't think that she was given enough to, I don't think that it's kind of like, you know, in the um, Olympics when they have diving or gymnastics or something like that, and you're marked on your difficulty level. I don't think the difficulty level of her performance was high enough. I think she did very well what she did, but I don't think there was enough to her character to justify being sorry. nominated. Sorry, sorry, to justify being nominated in the the top five acting performances by a female last year. Put it and that. Do you not think it's just because she kind of made it look easy? Because I think her character, you know, we sort of said that it wasn't particularly complex, maybe, but perhaps that's sort of due to the way that she performed the character. Yeah, but do we know, you, you asked yourself a question, do we know why she gave up, you know, a decade of her life and was so fiercely, you know, feeling like she needed to hunt down Bin Laden? There was never any explanation. I got a bit of that. To, I, I Personally, I, I did get a bit of that towards the end. Uh, I, I felt I was getting some payoff for her character towards the end. But, uh, there's the conversation about the fact that this is all she's ever done. And I, I did... I did connect with her character during that. I just don't think for a two and a half hour, I just don't think her character went through enough of a journey for me. Um, and, but, but at the same time, Owen does make a good point. She does. It's kind of, sometimes you see these performances where it's almost, again, to use a different analogy here, it's the footballing analogy. It's the water carrier. She, she does carry the film to be fair without <laughs> reaching amazing dramatic heights for me she kept me interested in the film so she did her job in that sense um, yeah i mean she kind of threads it all together doesn't she yeah i know it's based around her character um, anyway more than it is about sort of the hunt for bin laden but i don't know but you know going back to a point jerry made earlier i think that the, the film itself felt like it was they had the idea for the final scene you know the, the sort of actual getting Bin Laden bit, if you like. And um, the rest of the film is just kind of an add-on. That's the way it kind of felt to me. 
interestingly, it's in real life, it happened the other way around. I was listening to a Catherine Bigelow interview and up until the moment that Bin Laden was killed in real life, they'd been working on this film for a Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman. I'm joined by James Diamond. Hello. Jerry McCauley. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. Uh, this week we are inducting our second member into the Corridor of Praise behind Harrison Ford. Uh, more on who it is later. We'll keep you, we'll keep you dangling on our hooks there. Um, but first we'll Starts off with our usual what we have been watching. Um, and myself and Jerry have both watched Zero Dark Thirty, so it's probably best to start off with that. Uh, Jerry, won't you introduce us? Because I've been talking for 45 seconds. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm everyone's singing your voice already, Steve. Um, Zero Dark Thirty, new film by the director of The Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow. A brother of, um, uh, sister of Juice Bigelow, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's she's the um, the older, slightly classier sibling, yeah. I think. Damaged um, by her brother's reputation, I think it's a, a, a cross for her to bear. And with this and The Hurt Locker, she's slowly moving out of his shadow. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> Interesting as well that she's she. I didn't realize she was Cameron's uh, ex-wife as well, James Cameron's ex-wife. You didn't. You been. You not being sarcastic there, Jerry. You didn't realize that. No, I, I, I don't give a fuck who's married to who. Oh no, but um, the 2010 Oscars was this massive thing because it was Avatar versus the Hurt Locker, and it was ex-wife versus ex-husband, and uh, and she won because you know, whatever you think it's Hurt Locker, it's better than Avatar. Do you not read Heat, Jerry? <laughs> well, what you're suggesting is that for some reason I would care whether Avatar was better than The Hurt Locker. I know, but it was an, it was the Oscar ceremony. It was an, I don't actively search out this kind of celebrity gossip, believe sure, it or not, uh, sure. for someone who cries at every film he goes to see. But you, you couldn't avoid it. I, I'm I'm just shocked that you avoided that knowledge. Well, until this year, I didn't really read anything about the Oscars until the uh, either I read the nomination list and then I read the winners list. I didn't really read uh, the for around. All right then, okay. No one I'm surprised that stuff. It's it's still no um, Gary Oldman, Big Mo kind of. Bring out another fact of that level. Yeah, no, I it's, don't it's think, not up there, but I it's don't, still pretty. I don't think there is another movie family fact of that level. I think that's as big as it gets. Yeah. Anyway, zero. So, yeah, zero. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, uh, we always get onto Gary Oldman a little and, and yeah. Big Mo. I don't know how, but we always do. Um, it's the story of basically the 10 years, I think it's about 10 years, um, spent trying to hunt down and kill Osama Bin Laden by a particular CIA agent. Don't spoil like... the ending. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, played by, uh, is it Jessica? Jessica, Jessica Chastain. Chastain. Yeah. yeah. Who is in The Help. Um, she was very good in The Help. I really liked The Help. Um, and Lawless, which we reviewed last last year. Yeah. Um, and it's also got um, quite a few good cameos in it. I'm trying to think going through. 
Um, you know, there's there's little cheeky cameos for it. Joel Edgerton turns up later on. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I suppose James Gandolfini's a bit too big to be a cameo. He's not in it a lot, but it's probably... Little. I'm still classic cameo. Yeah. yeah. I got yeah. quite excited when I saw Scott Adkins was in it. He's someone I think is actually a rising star in action films, so I was quite chuffed to see him in it. Um, John Barrowman threw me completely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. John Barrowman of, of Doctor Who companion fame and has done more than one series of variety shows on BBC One at like six yeah. o'clock in the evening on a Saturday. And he did movie and he t- for a bit, and, I remember. He, uh, he took over from Philip Schofield on the movie show and, as well. And, he, long time and he's extreme when he's not in character, he's extremely camp. And to see mm. him in that just blew my mind a bit. I was just what Aww. what's going on here? Um there was also Mark Chris Strong Pratt. was in it. Yeah, Mark Strong was very good in that. Uh fans of Safety Are Guaranteed will have been thrilled to spot Mark Duplass as Yes, yes, yeah, Mark Duplass, and yeah, and Chris Pratt, who was Jason Siegel's brother in the five-year engagement last mm. year, and also yeah. um, is in Parks and Recreation. So it's it's a big cast. I've seen it. Have you seen it as well, Owen? Yeah, yeah is this what is this one that all of us have seen? Oh, interesting. Okay, oh, yeah, it's a rarity these days. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's not even a main review. Goodness <laughs> me. Um, well, well, what were everyone's thoughts then? I enjoyed it. I liked it more than The Hurt Locker, which I couldn't really get into. I don't know why maybe I wasn't really paying attention, maybe I wasn't in the mood when I tried to watch The Hurt Locker, but I tried to watch it and just didn't get into it. But I really did get quite into uh, Zero Dark Thirty and and enjoyed it for pretty much the most part. I I actually um, watched uh, The Hurt Locker immediately after this, because when I it was on TV later that night, um, on Saturday night, and I hadn't seen The Hurt Locker before because basically everyone told me it was, you know, the worst film to win the Best Picture Oscar since Crash, so never bothered with it, really. <laughs> um, I mean... Crash is a lot worse. Face Crash the competition from Avatar that year, which says a lot, you know. Um, but I actually preferred The Hurt Locker to Zero Dark Thirty, I think. Okay. And I didn't like The Hurt Locker that much. Mm-hmm. I th- I, uh, the way I was looking at it, um, the f- there was a lot of it which was just bloated and unnecessary, really, this film. I thought it, it got bogged down for quite a while. There's a lot of stuff that didn't really add much. The characters didn't feel great, I must say. You know, her character for the main character, it, it was a bit one-dimensional. We didn't really, you know, we don't know much about her. We don't really get drawn into her, her motivations at all. And so, you know, the way she suddenly gets galvanised into, you know, being motivated by certain things, shall we say, felt mm. very false because, those, you know, relationships weren't built anyway. Um, and, I, and then the end scene, the raid, which I don't think you can really have a spoiler alert in this film, mm. no. um, unless you were like Mr. Bin Laden living in a cave for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, the end raid was absolutely fantastic. That was really well done, and it was gripping, and I think that pulled it up a bit. But I think overall it was just a bit average, and I don't understand how it's got nominated for stuff. I, I'll be honest, I liked it. Um, I thought, what I did like about it is it treated its audience with a measure of intelligence in the fact that it didn't dumb down any of its language. Um, I struggled at times to keep up with it, and you kind of had to know a little bit about some of the... Because they, they'd reel off a load of names of suspected terrorists and they wouldn't really give you much context. Um, and you had to try and remember hearing those names on the news. But I, I 
to be honest, I, I've got no problem with a film that treats its audience as if it is intelligent and has an interest in current affairs. I think that should be applauded. I agree with you. Some of the pacing was off, especially in the first half. It, it kind of... I couldn't help comparing it to Argo. Uh, they're two very different films, but essentially they're, they're made of the same DNA. And Argo, I felt, w- was better at um, creating tension in a story where you kind of already knew what was going to happen. I found myself mm. thinking that earlier as well. I, I was thinking, do you know what? If Affleck had done this in the same way that he made Argo, I think there would have been a lot more because... It would have been half an hour shorter. <laughs> it would have and I think as much as anything, you, you watch, it's a real life story and you watch cinema for drama and something, you know, that isn't just plodding real life. And I didn't feel like it was particularly entertaining for a lot of it. I mean, I didn't feel like I'd been cheated out of my time. Mm. I didn't dislike it, but at the same time, I thought it was just a very average middling film. It didn't tell me too much that was new. It didn't entertain me massively. I didn't identify particularly with the characters. And Jessica Chastain's got nominated for like Best Actress and stuff, hasn't she? Yeah, I I am Why? surprised at that. Having I thought she was quite good. I thought I thought she was good, but I thought there were I thought there were plenty of better performances last year that showed a lot more range and depth. I don't think she did anything wrong, and I, th- I think she was good as Maya. I just don't think that she was given enough to. I don't think that it's kind of like you know in the um, Olympics when they have diving or gymnastics or something like that, and you're marked on your difficulty level. I don't think the difficulty level of her performance was high enough. I think she did very well what she did, but I don't think there was enough to her character to justify being sorry. nominated. Sorry, sorry, to justify being nominated in the the top five acting performances by a female last year. Put it but that. Do you not think it's just because she kind of made it look easy? Because I think her character, you know, we've sort of said that it wasn't particularly complex, maybe, but. Perhaps that's sort of due to the way that she performed the character. Yeah, but do we know, you, you asked yourself a question, do we know why she gave up, you know, a decade of her life and was so fiercely, you know, feeling like she needed to hunt down Bin Laden? There was never any explanation. I got a bit of that. To, I, I Personally, I, I did get a bit of that towards the end. Uh, I, I felt I was getting some payoff for her character towards the end. But, uh, there's the conversation about the fact that this is all she's ever done. And I, I did... I did connect with her character during that. I just don't think, for a two and a half hour, I just don't think her character went through enough of a journey for me. Um, and, but, but at the same time, Owen does make a good point. She does, it's kind of, sometimes you see these performances where it's almost, again, to use a different analogy here, it's the footballing analogy, it's the water carrier. She, she does, carrying the film to be fair without <laughs> reaching amazing dramatic heights for me she kept me interested in the film so she did her job in that sense um, yeah i mean she kind of threads it all together doesn't she yeah i know it's based around her character um, anyway more than it is about sort of the hunt for bin laden but i don't know but you know going back to a point jerry made earlier i think that the, the film itself felt like it was they had the idea for the final scene you know the, the sort of actual getting Bin Laden bit, if you like. And um, the rest of the film is just kind of an add-on. That's the way it kind of felt to me. Interestingly, it's, in real life, it happened the other way around. I was listening to a Catherine Bigelow interview, and up until the moment that Bin Laden was killed in real life, they'd been working on this film for about 18 months, straight after the Hurt Locker, working on this film about the failed attempt 
to kill Bin Laden. To track <laughs> Bin Laden. Fucking boring it would have been. Well, yeah, so that they worked on that, and then it took. They went from Bin Laden dying, and it took them a year to turn around. Um, and they shot the scene of the raid. Quite interestingly, I thought on night on the exact ye- uh, year's anniversary of the day Bin Laden was killed, they were in Afghanistan filming that shot. Um, so they turned it around very, very quickly. But I do think the best bit of the film is the raid by far. Mm-hmm. It is brilliantly shot. You know, Catherine Bigelow can shoot action sequences very, very well. And she, it's brilliantly shot. It's very tense. Um, and it is a good payoff to the film. And yeah, maybe without that raid, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have felt as positive towards the film as I do. I don't think it's one of the best films of the year. I don't think it should win best film and I don't think it will win best film. Uh, but I, I, I enjoyed it and I thought it was a very, very well crafted film. Do you think that maybe the lack of tension comes from it being over a 10 year arc? Like it's quite hard considering everyone knows a story. Um, mm. and pretty much, you know, knows the, the basic elements of the story. And this film takes place over a period of 10 years. It doesn't really give it much opportunity to build up much tension. It kind of goes along at the same pace, you know, a film version of 10 years would, if that makes sense. I agree with you there, Steve. I think that's one of the problems. I think they look at too long a period mm. because there is so much tension in that final section. And I agree with you, James. It's really well filmed. It's really mm. well made. Um, but. I think because you so you, it felt like a very very good action sequence, and some of the earlier actiony sequences, like you know within uh, the camp scene, for instance, was was mm. well made, and there was you know the uh, very early scenes, the opening scenes, mm. and scenes of torture, which were which were well done. Oh, and yeah, I think it felt like there was a few big scenes. It was a typical kind of Hollywood thing where there was a few big scenes that they wanted to you know show off with and made for trailers. And they were sort of strung together by some thin plot that they dragged out over 10 years to be able to fit all those in. That's how it felt to me. But again, I felt the hurt locker watching that. That felt like a load of action sequences with some kind of, you know, thin thread of story strung through the middle. And and the characters went, I didn't feel too much for the characters in that either. Not as much as I think she was hoping for. So... I think maybe I just have a problem with the way she makes films. Yeah, I don't think she sort of makes films to tell a story particularly, really. It's, I mean, it's more about pushing the message out, isn't it? With the Hurt Locker about sort of the war and, you know, how bad it actually is and all that kind of stuff. And then with Zero Dark Thirty about some of the more, you know, ethically, um, morally dubious methods that we use and trying to highlight actually, you know, it might not have <laughs> been improved of or anything, but it was used and, you yeah. know, and this is interesting because this is the reason it won't win Best Picture is because of all the torture it stuff that's it, been slung. It should win it because it's not good enough. But. Well, yeah, yeah. But this is why it's not even really in the running, let's be honest. It's not. It's definitely not going to win because of that. Um, but I, I've heard a lot of people say it's pro-torture, which I find really difficult mm. to marry up with my views having seen it. What I did find is that it was it was honest. Clearly, torture has been used by the US government, mm. um, and I think it is completely impossible to unpick what good torture did and what bad torture did. There, there's a scene early on where, at the height of some torture, some guy just reels off a load of days that an attack's going to happen because he's just desperate for it to happen. And the bit of information they do get, they get out from treating him more like a human being. Um, but at the same time, it probably isn't massively judgmental 
of torture. Maybe that's why people think it's pro-torture because it's not specifically condoning it. I, I, find, I find it really weird, though, to hear arguments that this film condones torture because I, I didn't get that from it at all. I didn't either. I mean, I felt the thing that saved this from being American propaganda was the fact that they, they were sort of unflinching in the way they showed the torture. Mm. I thought that was the thing that stopped it just being an America fuck yeah kind of, yeah. you know, well done, we shot Bin Laden, we shot the bad guys. And there were, that was one of the problems with it. a lot of the characters. There was no question of their motivation. They, they you know, this is a bad guy, we're going to mm. now, we're going to, and that was it. You know, it was very much a, a kids, cops and robbers kind of, mm. you know, good, bad thing but the, the stuff about torture and, and that there was a couple of bits where they they just put it out in a very documentary style they just put it out there and let you go hmm what do you think of that because mm. and, and there was there was hints of the political stuff you know but they could, they could bad, have, bad they could have quite easily copped out and just cut to um the the woman's face while you're hearing someone screaming in the mm. background because he's being waterboarded and they didn't actually yeah. show what was going on I don't think it was pro torture at all. I think it was just showing this no. is this is what happened. This is the way it happens. Yeah. Um, essentially, it, we're not saying whether it's yeah. good or bad. Make your own mind up. But this is what happened. Ah, oh, we all seem to be in agreement on that. That's good. <laughs> right. Um, let's move on from this now. Then, Jerry, did you watch any other films this week? Um, other than the Hurt Locker, no, the Hurt Locker was was mediocre. It's probably slightly better than Zero Dark Thirty, and I cared a little bit about some of the characters at some points, and some of the explosions were very pretty. But again, mediocre film. I mean, the, the problem I have with both these films is why are they in contention for these awards? I mean, it's just uh, it staggers me. Like you can't tell me, you know, Skyfall, um, The Dark Knight Rises, and Avengers weren't better than Zero Dark Thirty last year. Anne Hathaway as Catwoman was better. She should have been nominated twice if you're going to nominate Jessica Chastain. I, I just can't understand why these things are getting nominated. They're, they're average or average to good films. They're quite mediocre, but happen to tell things that the Academy thinks are important, but in ways that they're yeah. pushing a political... And that, that's the case. Can you be nominated yeah, twice for, for Best Actress or Actor or Best Supporting? I, I don't think so, but I'm just I, saying, I, you know... If if you're going to think about the performances last year, off the top of my head, Anne Hathaway could have been nominated twice, and it's still yeah. and Jessica Chastain would have got nowhere near either of those. Do you know what I mean? Um, right. I watched um, Jeff Who Lives at Home, which has been much talked about on this podcast before, so I won't dwell on it too much. But obviously, stars um, Jason Segel's and the one out of the uh, Ed Helms. That's the one. Um, <laughs> it is. It is good. It's enjoyable. You can. A lot of people can probably replate, um, relate to Jeff, who lives at home. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an enjoyable film. It's definitely worth a watch, but it's been spoken about by probably the other three, so I won't go into it too much, because other people want to talk about what they've been watching this week, don't they, Owen? Uh, yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I watched um, The Possession this week. Um, it was a film that came out last year, a horror film. Didn't really get much fanfare, but... Um, Documentary on Liverpool Football Club. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's a fil- film about a young girl who buys this antique box at a yard sale um, and it contains a malicious ancient spirit, as they always do, and starts to possess the little girl. Um, and, yeah, that's basically the is, plot. Is, this, is, it, is it the one, the Dibbox box one? Because it's actually... That's like a, the one, yeah. It's actually like a... On, 
there's a really creepy and odd true story behind this film, isn't there? Or supposedly yeah, yeah. true story behind this film. Whether you believe what happened to these people is up to you, but they swear it's <laughs> yeah. true. I mean, it might be it might sound familiar to people because of um, you're right. It was sort of based on a true story, apparently. But you know, true story is in so much as there was a box that was put on eBay with a description about how it's haunted this family and all these different things that have happened because of this this Dibbert box, and um, it went viral, got sort of posted around the internet. And so, if it sounds familiar when someone says about the Dibbert box, then yeah. So the, the the idea for this film came out of that that sort of viral story. Um, it's interesting because it, it's, if you get sort of a few minutes to read up about it online, there's interesting things around it. The, the film was co-produced by Sam Raimi, and he was offered the actual box. So when it, the person who owned it offered to give it to him, and he just mm. point blank refused. He didn't want anything to do with it, um, <laughs> which is interesting. And then, of course, there's all these different stories about creepy things that happened during production, and you know how afterwards all the, the props that were stored in the warehouse all burnt down after, after they finished filming and stuff. So, yeah, but it's you know, it's probably most of it's bullshit, but it's worth worth reading up on because it's, it's quite. Is it awesome. as is it as scary as viral story as the rake? <laughs> No, 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 nothing is, I don't think. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the film itself, it got quite negative reviews when it came out, because it is basically um, everything you would expect from a possession film, and they just put it into a new, different setting and updated it slightly. So, yeah, I mean, the story, although it focuses on this young girl who comes to be possessed by this demon, um, it's kind of just an average film, really. Um yeah, there are some interesting ideas here. They kind of explore some of the more interesting rumours about the Dibbert box, so the way that it sort of possesses this girl and some of the things that she ends up doing. Visually, it looks good, and it's very creative in that sense. So the, on the poster for the film is a girl uh, who's sort of got a head bent backwards and there's a hand coming out of her mouth grabbing her face. I wanted to see that in the film. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite happen as you see it on the poster, which is a shame, because I thought they could have made some quite cool sort of graphics out of that but no I and mean, it, it sort of embodies every sort of trope and idiom of every average possession film that's out there there's few things in it that you, you know you'll probably even recognise from episodes of X-Files you know grabs different different <laughs> stories from different different media out there but it's some of it's done well the majority of it's handled quite shoddily um, which is a shame the performances in it aren't too bad I guess I quite like Jeffrey Dean Morgan who um, has probably been Quite famous, I think, as playing the comedian from Watchmen. We've talked about the Watchmen on here before. He, so he's really good in it. He plays the father. He's a bit sort of um, a bit stressed from his, his split up with his wife, so he's divorced and his kids are going to all these different things. And he, he plays the father role quite well, but not particularly originally, I guess. But he, you know, puts in a decent shift. But overall, it's kind of film. It's worth a watch. Late at night, if you're struggling for something to do, you're in bed, you've got your laptop, and it's just there for streaming, then do it. I mean, I wouldn't expect The Exorcist, um, but it's 90 minutes of a few creepy scenes and, yeah, decent-ish story. Um, excellent. So, uh, just left with James now and what he's been watching this week. Yes, I've got a couple more that I'm finally allowed to break embargo on from my <laughs> day at the UK Cinema Showcase. So I'm going to be quite quick on these. Uh, they're both out on Friday. Uh, the first one is Flight, which is directed by Robert Zemeckis. His first film that isn't blooming motion captured stuff for a long, long time. <laughs> uh, and it's got Denzel Washington, uh, a nomination 
for Best Actor. Um, Denzel Washington plays a guy called Whip Whitaker. He's an airline pilot who miraculously stops his plane from killing everyone on board. It still crashes, but he pulls off ridiculous manoeuvres to save the lives of most of the people on on the flight. Uh, Becomes a bit of a hero, but it turns out the man is a raging alcoholic uh, and takes drugs, and he was um, very drunk and coked up the moment he saved everyone on the plane. Uh, And the investigation starts uh, into him, and his life starts to unravel. Basically, I didn't like, I'll be honest, I didn't like this film. Um, first 20 minutes of it are very good. The plane crash scene is fantastic. And then you get two hours pretty much of one of the most unsympathetic characters I've ever seen committed to film. Um, and halfway through the film, I'm thinking, I've, I do not care if he gets away with it. I do not, I do not care about this man because it's quite a cliched portrayal of addiction. We've seen addiction portrayed on screen very well in the last few years. Uh, I think most notably, um, Michael Fassbender in Steve McQueen's Shame was a fascinating exploration of addiction. <laughs> this is <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, Jerry didn't like that. Um... <laughs> But but this is just really cliched stuff. I read somewhere today, um, someone described Denzel Washington as basically being like um, Captain John Sparrow at times, and that's it. It's it tries to be funny when it shouldn't be, and then it tries to get serious when it should. It's just he he sings really deep. And interestingly, in this film, they use Piers Morgan for like you know kind of news reports to add a bit of realism to it. And this is a film in which Piers Morgan is not the most loathsome screen presence and that's saying a lot that's an an achievement surely surely Um, he deserves an Oscar nomination if he's making Piers Morgan not the most dislikable person in the film yeah that's a good point actually Uh, yeah it's not the worst uh, do you know it's kind of like 10 minutes in you go all right this is Denzel being bad okay and I, I like Denzel I think Denzel has a great screen presence but he does seem to have two gears as an actor and there is bad Denzel and there is good Denzel is it is it Denzel uh, as in Denzel only falls on horses Denzel or is it Denzel it's Denzel Washington oh, yeah. sorry <laughs> Uh, that, that's my um that's my southwest upbringing coming yeah. up everyone Denzel um yeah, and it's it's kind of like Training Day, but not as good, not as cool, not as charismatic. And actually, you just his character in Training Day was very much an anti-hero, uh, and you kind of was on his side, even though he's a complete bastard. You're not on this guy's side at all. He's a dick. Um, John Goodman's probably the best part of the film, but his character, he, while he's on screen, you think, "Oh, this is brilliant," and then you think, "What well, his character doesn't make much sense." I just like him being on screen because at least it's cheering me up a little bit so yeah i'd say don't bother with flight it's not great um watch the first 20 minutes and then sneak into another cinema and watch another film um maybe go and watch hyde park on hudson which is the other film that's out this week which has had a bit of a kicking on imdb i see it's only 5.7 on imdb which is yeah i'm shocked by that because it it was a nice little film that i watched it's not going to win Best film uh, awards or anything like that. But very quickly, it is the story of a love affair between Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, played by Bill Murray, uh, and his distant cousin. His very distant cousin. Don't worry, there's nothing weird going on here. Um, Daisy. And it is 
it centres around a weekend in 1939 when uh, King George and Queen Elizabeth, um, who became the Queen Mum, visited the United States for the first time. Uh, and it was to try and get America's support for the war effort. Now, the King and Queen, I can't remember who the King's played by. Um, Samuel West, I believe. That's it, Bertha. Yes, yeah, Samuel West, who's very good in it. Um, and More Elizabeth- excited is the Queen is Olivia Coleman and she is incredible in this. She is funny. She is, she's absolutely wonderful. Laura Linney plays Daisy. She is wonderful as well. Bill, Mar- Bill Murray is lovely as FDR. Bit of a sex pest, um, but you kind of mm-hmm. like him. Um, and it's a really nice cast. Olivia Williams plays Eleanor Roosevelt as well. She's brilliant. Um, I saw her most recently in Hannah as the mum of the hippie family in Hannah. She, she's great. It's a load of lovely performances. It's a, it feels a bit, I don't know if it is based on a play. I don't think it is, but it feels like it was based on a play. Uh, if it's got that kind of feel to it, it's very character based, romantic, funny. It's just a really lovely film. I, I don't know what to say. I don't want to say too much more about it. It's based over a weekend. It's one of those limited storytelling things, but it's 90 minutes. Uh, and I far preferred it to flight. So. That would be my tip for the films that are out on Friday. Quick question, James. Yes. Uh, Olivia Coleman, I would go so far as to say she is the best British actress alive at the moment. She's fantastic. Do you think this is going to get her big roles in Hollywood films? Because she does deserve them. I hope so. I, I agree with you. I think she, for the last two or three years, she has been the most consistent um brilliant actress in Britain. Uh, fantastic range. Um, I would like to think that it would do for her what, say, the remainder of the day did for uh, Emma Thompson back in 93, I think it was. I, I do think she is in that kind of category, and I, I hope it does lead to more things for her, um, if that's what she wants. I don't know. Maybe she wants to stay in England, just do nice little films over here. But, yeah, um, she is fantastic in this. She's genuinely brilliant in this. So, um I, before we move on, I, do, I did just want to clear up a bit of trivia for you. Um, in 1930, both Greta Garbo and Norma Shearer were nominated twice for Best Actress for different films at the Oscars. So it has happened before. Um, and one of them won it. Norma Shearer won it for The Divorcee. But since then, um, there's been a number of occasions where people have been nominated for Best um, actor or actress and best supporting actress within the same year for different films but no one's been nominated twice in the same category so just clearing up yeah for the listeners at home clearing up a little bit of mm. trivia for them fact bombs if anything <laughs> <laughs> most recently it was Kate Blanchett in 2007 for uh, Elizabeth the Golden Age and I'm Not There and Al Pacino won it uh, in 92 for Scent of Woman and was nominated for Glengarry Glen Ross for best supporting actor as well it's weird, he's only in that for about 10 minutes, isn't he? He is good. He's good in it, though. He's he is very good in it, yeah. Um Right then, so, um, on to Corridor of Praise, James, take the helm. Okay, so yes, the Corridor of Praise, the Fell Critics' very own Hall of Fame. Uh, every month or so, you know, we'll induct someone into our Corridor of Praise, and our only conditions are that person cannot have won an Oscar for their main job in the movies and they have to have a career spanning at least 20 years uh it is someone that all four of us have agreed to being inducted in and most likely all four of us are a fan of 
uh, as well. Um, so it's a, it's a very high honour, and for a lot of actors and actresses and directors and writers, it may well be the only honour they ever win, just because of the type <laughs> of person we're talking about here. Um, but I'd like to hand over to Jerry, who's written a beautifully heartfelt introduction to this this week's inductee. It's, it's, it's a special place in my heart for them, that's why. Gather round, listeners. Stick a log on the fire. <laughs> Get a glass of port. It's story time. You can sit on the carpet if you want, pretend like an old man in an armchair reading off a book. Aww. I have this in a leather-bound book, in your head at least. Not really. Mertzerschlag, Austria. Like my pronunciation? No? The Second yeah, World War good. is ending. Aurelia Jadbury, a clerk in her early 20s, whose husband was killed just eight months after their wedding, is working at her desk when she spots a tall, good-looking man in his late 30s walking past. He's wearing the uniform of the gendarmerie, Austria's rural police, and she likes a man in uniform. Over time, they talk through the window. She works out when his shift is, so she's always at her desk. His name is Gustav, and when they marry late in 1945, he is 38 and she is 23. Good lad. <laughs> He's assigned to Thal, a tiny village, and they live in a simple stone house at the top of a hill, a hundred yards from a ruined old castle, on the single unpaved road in the village. There is no plumbing, no shower, no flushing toilet, and the nearest well is a quarter of a mile away. I, I was on board until that. <laughs> I was like, hell. <laughs> they make do, Steve, they make do. They scrape by on his meagre wage through hard work and thrift, an ethic they will instill in their children. They quickly have a son, Meinhard, and struggle along despite the widespread famine in newly occupied Austria. In 1947, with the famine still ongoing and at its worst, they have another son. In this small, impoverished stone house in rural Austria, one of the 20th century's greatest stars has just been born. Gustav and Aurelia name him Arnold, and their big, broad genetics and hard-working nature will combine to make Arnold Schwarzenegger one of the most influential men in modern American culture. Both boys are encouraged by their father to frequently take part in sports, particularly football. He knew, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing for stuff. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you'll mention this later, but isn't Austria's national football stadium named the Arnold Schwarzenegger Stadium? I don't know, but that's an excellent fact. Or, or what, at least or at least one of the teams with in... the stadium in Graz. Yeah, sorry yeah, to Sturm, Sturm Graz. interrupt such a beautiful story time. Yeah. <laughs> but he withdrew permission because they didn't like the fact that he... Um, he allowed someone to die on death row. But we can come on to that. It's an interesting story. <laughs> Not as interesting as Jerry's. Yeah. Jerry, carry as, on. As the children grow up, they start to do sit-ups to earn their breakfast. This is a genuine true story. As well as doing a lot of chores. At 15, Arnold decides to take up weightlifting over football, attending a gym in nearby Graz. There you go, Steve. That's where the stadium is. There we are. The dedication his harsh father has drilled into him leads him to break into the gym when it's closed on weekends. At 18, he serves in the army as part of his military service. During basic training, he goes AWOL to take part in the Junior Mr. Europe bodybuilding contest. The week he spends in military prison is made worthwhile by him winning the competition. In 1966, he takes a plane for the first time to go to London for the Mr. Universe competition. He comes second, but a judge spots his potential, and invites him to live with his family in London to train him. Oh, yeah. Jimmy Savile. A year later, age 20, and with a slowly improving grasp of English, Arnold wins the Mr. Universe title, the first of three. He moves to Munich and goes to business school, and he was switched on even then. 
recognising that his Mr Universe titles are the way to achieve his long-held ambition of moving to the US. In 1968, he moves to LA, training at Gold's Gym and embarking on the path to being an American legend. He wins the first of seven Mr Olympia titles in 1970, but his brother Meinhard dies in a drink-driving accident in 1971, followed by his father a year later. Arnold doesn't attend his funeral. By this stage, he's had his first film role in Hercules in New York. And over to James. Yes. Of course, it's the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'd like to welcome him to our corridor of praise. Um, well, you're not going yeah, to tell him no, um, are you? If, no, he t- no, if he turns exactly. off at the door, you wouldn't say, no, you're not coming in. No. Um, and yeah, I think Jerry has beautifully summed up about the first uh, quarter of Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography, that, uh, which I'm currently trying to read at the moment. I, and and he, he, he hit that nail on the head there. It, Arnie is, he's got such a work ethic and um, he is where he is through pure dint of hard work. And you've got to admire someone like that who has put their mind to achieve so much. He, he, he holds the rec- he still holds the record for most um, bodybuilding titles, a major bodybuilder. He's got 13 of the world titles he won at some point. That's before he even became an actor. That's pretty incredible. Um, now, have we all seen Pumping Iron? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, po- possibly one of his greatest roles. Um, but that led, you know, obviously Pumping Iron, one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And it led to his first big role in Hollywood, which would be Conan the Barbarian, uh, followed by Conan the Destroyer. But I'll, I'll hand over to someone else to talk about the Conan films, because I think they're clearly a massive break for him. But I, to my shame, and I've still not seen a Conan film. Oh, that is disgraceful. <laughs> <laughs> Call yourself a man. He's, he's reprising the role, apparently, next year. He's going to be Conan once more. Yeah. Exciting. Mm. I'll have to watch them before then, obviously. But um, yeah, so w- w- what what did people see in him in Conan? Then someone tell me what's so brilliant about Conan led to this fantastic career. Where do I begin? <laughs> <laughs> you make him sound like Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> well, I'm being Arnie. Do you know what I mean? When you think yeah. of Arnie, and he does this sort of over the top action hero, where he's totally convincing that he could break you in half with his bare hands. And he's he's you know he's quite intense when he wants to be as well. I mean, you think about the late some of the later stuff. He's very intense in some of his roles. And as Conan, he he just he's just embodies the role really well. And the the line about you know I want to see my enemies driven before me, rape their women and kill their children and all sorts of stuff. I can't remember the exact line, but it's along those lines. And he's he, he's brilliant as that character. He's he's a proper warrior. And he just brings so much career. He's got such stage presence. It's just brilliant. Yeah. It That's is the good. perfect role to sort of introduce someone to, to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think there's just so many quotable lines from it. Yeah. It's just yeah, it's just one of those films. Um, You've got to um, see it sometime, James. I will, I'll, I'll, I'll make it my mission in the next few months to watch those. Um, they then led to... He, he must have many iconic roles, but there can't be a more iconic role than his role as the Terminator. Um, Owen, I know you're a massive fan of the Terminator. What's what's so incredible about him in that then? Um, well, it's just hard to see anyone else doing what he does in that film. 
Uh, yeah. I watched a last action hero earlier, and there's a there's a poster in there which shows Sylvester Stallone. Yes. <laughs> Just does not look right at all. There is only one man who can be the Terminator, and that yeah. is Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's just his sort of cold, cool delivery, in, especially in the first film, and then in the second film, obviously, it's a bit lighter and a bit more sort of almost jovial at times. But yeah, the, the, the original Terminator, he's just so menacing without actually saying much. Yeah. I think it's that sort of machine-like delivery that, make, that made him such a cool character. Just and go- then in the second one, I think, because he has that sort of machine-y delivery, as you say, and he is... You know, one of the criticisms of him is always that he's robotic, but he uses that, and he's so charismatic in the second mm. Terminator 2. Definitely. He brings Definitely. so much humour playing on the fact that everyone says that he's wooden and robotic, you know. But he is, I think I was right, he's hugely charismatic. A lot of people could be a, could pretend to be the Terminator in the first film, but you genuinely believe him. Um, and there, there is a genuine skill there. And also it led to the brilliant thing that... Um, a, it led to him, his catchphrase of I'll be back, which is probably his most famous catchphrase. Uh, but of course, the disagreement over whether it should be I'll be back or I'll come back. <laughs> a lot, which I think that was Schwarzenegger wanted it to be I'll come back because it was more grammatically correct or something like that. And it was James Cameron who convinced him to say I'll be back. Um he then went on to do Red Sonja, which, from what I, again, this is another, I've not seen Red Sonja, but looking at it, it looks like Conan the Barbarian in all but name. Is that, has anyone it's else? It's a spin off, I think. Right, okay. If I remember correctly. Oh, but he's not called Conan. <laughs> it's one of those films I've recorded a few times because it's on like 5 USA quite yeah. frequently, and I always end up deleting it and not bothering with it. Yeah. Not but actually then, seen it. Then he went on to do, oh, I think, my second favourite Arnie film. Um, and one of the best action films ever, Commando, as John Matrix. Um, yeah, the film where he doesn't have a lot of skills. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of money, but what he does have is a certain particular set of skills. Yes. He's going to find yes. the people who've taken his Yes, yeah. exactly. He would, <laughs> he would kick Neeson's ass. <laughs> Neeson does not look like, he does not have the physique of an action hero. No. Uh, yeah, that's, that's another thing. Although I, I quite... Neeson is of an era, and this is another thing actually. This is, and we're now talking about back then, an era where action heroes had to look like this. Mm. Uh, and action heroes can take many different shapes and forms. The fact that Liam Neeson has carved out a career as an action hero still confuses me. But when I watch the original Taken, or when I watch The Grey, I do believe it is a more kind of realistic, um, and the fact that the, the remake of Total Recall had Colin Firth rather than Oh, Colin, Colin Farrell. Colin, yeah, oh God, yeah, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> that woman seems to have three tits. Oh. <laughs> That'd be incredible. All right, yeah. Um, yeah, Arnie is, Arnie was the, the body, the big action hero back there. And Commando is one of those where the film just takes, it, it, I think it's the first of his films where he doesn't take himself seriously. I think it's the first time you start to see a little bit of self-awareness about an Arnie film. The uh, the the one-liners become knowing one-liners. Uh, to me, it's the first film where you know he's got those great one-liners. Like um, my wife's one that she tweeted in earlier today at Kate Diamond. She said that her favourite one is um, my friend, leave my friend. He's dead tired. 
when he's on the, you know, because he's literally just killed him. It's like, yeah, it's good pun, Arnie. Good work. Uh, it's also got the classic one about, I said I'd kill you last, I lied. Um, <laughs> and it's the first Arnie film where he starts to get to play with comedy. And I know from reading the autobiography, he is very, very convinced of his comedic powers. I don't know if you've got that far, Jerry. Yeah, he, I mean, he the thing about Arnie is the great skill that he has in the 80s is that he realises that he's got all this criticism and people say, you know, he can't speak English very well and he's wooden, he's got a strong accent, etc. And I think in his first role as um, Hercules in New York, they had to actually dub the voice back in over him because he was so unintelligible uh, with his accent. But actually he realised he can use this to his advantage and he realised that he can make comedy out of it and he can, he can carve out his niche. You know, Stallone does real serious uh, action films and he can do action films that are still heavy hitting and violent and, you know, he's got... A, massive physical presence but you can still bring a bit of humor to that and it's kind of it fits perfectly with the way those films were made in the late 80s you know you think about it and, and really die hard wouldn't have been die hard as we know it if arnie hadn't started doing that with commander yeah, mm. yeah definitely um, just one point that jerry brought up earlier about his presence he's one of only two people that have got such screen presence that they never have to change their accent never have to do an accent and that's him and sean connery that's very true. Yeah, I've never really even just, thought about just, it just like never that. even think. Right, I'm not playing a Scotsman or an Austrian. Yeah. I'd best yeah. try and put on an American. Like, nah, I can't be bothered. I can pull yeah. this off without and, it. Let's and, be honest. And most of the films don't even apologise for it. Yeah, he, he generally is usually an American man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the start of an amazing run. And just looking at IMDb, you've got Terminator in '84, Commando in '85, uh, Raw Deal in '86, and then. He goes on to do Predator in 87, um, The Running Man in 87, uh, and then, you know, and we may well come, we may well talk about those two at the end because I'm going to ask about people's favourite Arnie films and I know Predator's definitely going to get a mention there. Um, and then he really gets to cut loose with his comedy with uh, Twins in <laughs> what, what do we think of his, let's round up all his comedy into one little package okay. now. What do we make of his comic roles, Twins, Junior, and and Jingle All The Way. Jingle All The Way as well. What do we make um, of those family comedy roles that he took on? Arguably I, Mr. Freeze and Batman and Robin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just to say that. He's I, the best thing in that film by a long way. I quite, I, I, I quite I like a, Kindergarten Cop and Jingle All I The Way. I've not, I've, I've, not seen, I've not seen Twins or Junior for a long time, so I couldn't comment on them. Junior's the only one he won a Golden Globe for, did you know that? <laughs> His role in Junior. No. Yeah, best comedy performance, wasn't it? That is that is good knowledge there. Oh, I mean, that's a lovely fact. He's won a Golden <laughs> Globe for. Oh, actually, I've not seen Junior. I've, I kind of didn't want to. <laughs> no, come on, man! It's Arnie pregnant. What? What more? <laughs> no, I know. I need to. I need to rectify that. I, I do love Kindergarten Cop, and actually, you think Kindergarten Cop, um, Twins, um, of the ones I've seen here, Mister Freeze in Batman and Robin, and Jingle All the Way. He's a genuinely engaging. He's better to me, in my opinion, than a lot of other actors who aren't known for their comedy. Uh, for example. Adam Sandler in recent years. I'd rather watch Arnie in a comedy than Adam Sandler, for example. Um, a number of Jim Carrey mugging performances. He's actually a more nuanced comedian, uh, comic actor, than some people who do that for a day job. 
Well, there's, there's something very self-aware about the way Arnie does humorous roles. You know, I think he gets a, he's got a bad rep and he's become a bit of a stereotype, you know. But actually, when he does the comedy role, he's he's very good, you know, and he knows exactly that he's speaking in a ludicrous mm. Austrian accent. He knows that, that you know, he's, he's not Al Pacino. Yeah. But he, he's still, he, what he has, he makes the very best of and he does it very well. And I think, you know, you've got to commend him for that throughout all his yeah. different roles. I'm going to be a little bit cynical, though, and suggest that I think it's kind of what most action film stars try to strive for eventually, comedy roles. I just think they pay more. I think you get more money from the box office. It's easier. I just think, you know, The Rock did it. Um, Oh, yeah. And The Rock, actually, to to my mind, is the modern Arnie, um, in that he is clearly a massive physical presence, can handle himself like that. Um, he's got a lot of charisma and he can do the comedy and he can do the comedy better than Arnie can as well. But um, I, I do think it's a genuine string to Arnie's bow. I, I think he I think he has a genuine talent and he has a, a level of comic timing, which Stallone doesn't have, um, Jean-Claude Van Damme doesn't have uh, other... <laughs> Steven Seagal definitely doesn't no, have... And I think he it's allowed him to continue. If he hadn't taken the break for political reasons, I do think he would have been able to continue acting long before, long after his action star status had an expiry date kind of thing. Well, I think uh, the break came at just the right time for his yeah. sort of comedy career, really. Um, yes. Well, his film career in general, he just... You know, if, he, if he'd have carried on, he probably would have ended up being one of those actors that you just think I just can't watch him anymore because it's too sad to see that they've ended up declining into opposite I guess to Sylvester Stallone where suddenly Mm. he's making some quite good films Mm. um or at least you know he's showing that he's capable of still writing good films or yeah Arnie went through that period didn't he where it towards the end of the 90s he made action films which didn't have that self-awareness very serious action films which were generally bit poor yeah it got end of days the sixth day and collateral damage and then terminator 3 which wasn't great either yeah i mean collateral damage was just such a boring film and that's the it was, it was commando done by a firefighter really wasn't it i mean yeah but without any of the wit yeah, and, the, it, yeah. and the winging it charm <laughs> that commando had uh i, I generally i think his best his best action film his last good action film would have been um, true Lies. Uh, I think Eraser's half decent. Eraser's not bad. Oh yeah, Eraser. Yeah, no, I'd forgotten about it. You are luggage. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's true. But I think his last really good one uh, was True Lies, uh, and Last Action Hero uh, the year before that, which is the most self-referential of all of his works. Uh, and by Shane Black, who did Leave the Weapon, and I think yeah, that's. That's great. You know, I think Owen makes a really good point. He he took a break at exactly the right time before people got tired of him and before he spent all of his credit with the audience. And now people are excited about him being back. And I think that's fantastic. And he's got a load. Of- ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com In in line, and, well, kind of that brings us on nicely, actually. Owen, you've seen him back in action. Um, what do you him, think? seen him back, yes. I went to see The Last Stand on its opening day in a tiny little cinema, which was a shame because there were about sort of 10 people in total that went to see it on its opening evening. That made me a bit sad. Um, mm. But, you know, it's, as a film, okay, it's all right. As an action film junkie, as I, I am, I can't deny that, I liked it. I think there, there were problems with it that maybe other people could, if you're nitpicking with it, you know, the, the character's really just cliched. And the, Apart from Arnie, I think Arnie puts in a really good performance, actually. He is by far and away the best thing about it. But every, every, everyone else around him is kind of a bit generic and bland, and it's a real shame. You know, you've got the comedy relief character, you've got the, the, the bit of a bad boy character, you've got the woman who's a bit actually quite strong character, and even the bad guy in it is just really kind of t- typical. But there's, there's a story which is about just an old cop. He's in this quiet little town on the border between Mexico and America. There's a drug cartel, a, drug, a gang just trying to get through to get to Mexico. One of them's just escaped to the FBI. He has to stop them. It's perfect, you know. For, for what it is, it is just the exact role that Arnie should have been taken. And, you know, the fact that it's directed by um, the uh, the guy who did I Saw the Devil, uh, I've forgotten his name, Ji Woon Kim, who uh, it's just brilliant with visuals. It, it works because the, in some action films, you kind of get it where... Um, you know, not to, to use it as a yardstick, but Transformers, okay? Mm. The action in that, you cannot make out what's happening in some of the fight yeah. scenes. Yeah. In this, it is just so smooth. Everything's really slick. There isn't a, a camera angle in the film where you can't see exactly what you're supposed to be seeing. And the fact that it's done with Arnie, and there's a, a sort of scene towards the end where it's... I'm, I'm, it's not a spoiler. There was a showdown between Arnie as the good cop and the drug guy as, as the sort of the villain of the piece, and it's a sort of showdown between the two of them. It's perfect. It's it's quite sort of self-aware. It knows that Arnie is this older guy now, and he's not really the young commando, sort of John Matrix character. He's, he's this sort of older guy, and he just wants a quiet life. It's perfect. It's really just it captures everything that this film should be. So as a film in its own right, yeah, it's a little bit sort of cliched and it's perhaps slightly unambitious with some with some of the things it attempts. But who cares, really? Uh, it's just great to see Arnie back and just doing exactly what he's best at, really. It's not stupid comedy. It's not boring action film. It's just, yeah, exactly what Arnie should be doing. So it made me happy. <laughs> Good. Well, that's nice to hear. And, um, yeah, he's got a, f- a few other films, like we say. We've got Legend of Conan. He's coming back to play Conan. There's rumours of Terminator 5. Hopefully, we do see a few more good Arnie films before 
before the man retires. And I'm, I'm glad he's come back. Yes. To round I would it up, like then. To say, just so before we, I would yeah. like to see him work again with um, with Jiwoon Kim. I think they could oh, forge okay. something quite well. It, it it reminds me a little bit because it's Jiwoon Kim's first sort of mm. Western film, um, and it sort of reminds me of you know like um, Hard Target with Van Damme. You know, it's oh, okay. It's kind of just like this could be the film where it pushes Jiwoon Kim into sort of mainstream cinema. It would be good if he could work together with Arnold Schwarzenegger instead of doing what, um, uh, what's his name, John Woo did, and sort of yeah. after Hard Target stopped working with Van Damme. If they could still keep together and keep that partnership, yeah. they could do something really quite exciting in the future. Oh, good. Um, yeah, so to round it off then, uh, I just want to hear everyone's favourite Arnie film and your favourite ever Arnie one-liner. And I've got a few people who uh, from Twitter uh, and the forum and things that I'll talk about as well, but from you guys first. Um, I think my favourite Arnie film uh, Commando. It's just action film perfection. Nice. Uh, and your favourite line, Steve? Go on. I, I honestly Deliver it, Arnie style. I honestly don't think I could pick one. There's, there's just far too many that are just brilliant. Jerry? Um, Total Recall for me. Gotta be Total Recall. Nice choice. Nice choice. Um, yeah, Total Recall. And your line? Um, there's a lot. There's a lot. Welcome to the Party is, is, is pretty pretty iconic. I'll, I'll, yes. I'll go for that one. See you at okay. the party, Richter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Owen? It's got to be Predator. It's one of those films that I've just I could watch every day. Um, my favourite line, though, is, is I was struggling as well. It's got to be something iconic. If I chose one of the sort of more sort of lines that not isn't quite so famous, then I'd be lying. It's got to be something like Hasta la Vista, baby. Just the delivery of it is just yeah. fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah. My mine is also Predator. Um, yes. I, I, it's just the perfect action film. It's mm-hmm. it's and, and it, it's one of those films that when it gets shown late uh, on Channel Four and I turn on, I watch to the end, regardless of what time I need to be up in the morning. I, I cannot stop myself watching it, which is which is the sign of a truly great film, it in is. my opinion. And and my favourite one would be, I said I'd kill you last, alive, <laughs> uh, when he kills uh, Sully in, in Commando. Um, absolutely brilliant. Um, a few others that we got. Um, so yeah, Kate Diamond said her favourite line was, don't disturb my friend, he's dead tired. Um, uh, two pink peonies uh, responded and said her favourite line was who is your daddy and what does he do um, from the classic <laughs> kindergarten cop um, also, uh, munchkin365 on twitter also said uh, I lied as well which I think is that, that's quite a classic one of the just below obviously we've got I'll be back and things like that um, and someone else um, oh yes uh, Terminator um, at NBC UK said the Terminator is his absolute favourite, which is, uh, but he also really liked Ice to See You from Man and Robin. <laughs> so, um, yeah, a lot of love for Arnie today. That was the most love we've had on Twitter for a little while, mm. just because you just mentioned Arnie and people are like, yeah, only ever. Everyone loves Arnie films, and anyone who doesn't is weird, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I think that, and the fact that the man will never win an Oscar saddens me. Um, so he's just going to have to make do with being put up on our corridor of praise. He's, he's um, a, rightly so. 
he's responsible for the manliest moment in the history of cinema when he does Dylan, you son of a bitch in Predator. Yeah. It's such a manly <laughs> film, just in general, isn't it? It's just such a fucking macho film. <laughs> did you watch the documentary, James? If we did I, oh, I didn't. I'm going to watch it this week when I watch Predator again because I got all excited about it. I just couldn't find time this weekend. I had to the watch story is about him and Jesse Ventura just competing to see who's got the biggest muscles. <laughs> just oh, just oh, fantastic. Oh, <laughs> they became good friends and everything. Um, interesting, I was just doing a bit of research. He was meant to be, uh, Arnie was meant to be in the Planet of the Apes remake originally. Um, and he was also going to be in a James Cameron version of um, I Am Legend at one point in the early 90s before um, they decided to do uh, True Lies. Uh, the man's had so many near parts as well. Oh, we just love Arnie, don't we? He's, he's also the inspiration for Rainier Wolfcastle and McBain. Yes. Which, yes. Is, <laughs> which is credit enough. Uh, definitely, definitely. Um. I believe that's all for for this week then. We've got something to play you out with. Before that, what's up next week? Okay, next week. Uh, well, on the website, there's a, there's already up, there's a great piece on the Queen of Versailles, uh, documentary about a family in the credit crunch, which John the Journo put up there for us. Um, and that's on, um, that's on TV this week. Um, few more reviews and things like that. We've got Jerry's 2002 Decade in Film going up on the site this week as well. And then next week's podcast, uh, we've got it's the return of Triple Bill. We've not had a Triple Bill for ages, it seems. Um, I think Christmas Triple Bill was our last one. So next week it's Triple Bill and uh, in honour of Sly Stallone's Bullet to the Head being in cinemas next week, we are going to our top three actors or actresses who we think need to make a comeback. Who would we love to see back on screen making a big not comeback? A, not off the top three actors or actresses who we want to see take a bullet to the head. <laughs> no, that, that's a very different triple bill. Mm. Um, and we've probably mentioned a lot of those people earlier today. Steven Seagal. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, it's actors and actresses that we really want to see make a comeback. So, yeah. Um, and then the week after that, we've got a main review of Wreck-It Ralph. So, yeah, that's the next couple of weeks on the podcast. Excellent. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to everyone who's contributed to this podcast. And thanks to Kevin McLeod for incompetech.com for the music. Here's a little something to end with today. When you're going to kill me. Now! Boy, you talk. Funny. Well, that's easy for you to say. You got a lot of nerve showing your face around here, Hauser. Look who's talking. You're fired. Let off some steam venom. Hey! What the hell did you do to him, man? I did nothing. The pavement was his enemy. Chill out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a pervert. I just was looking for trouble, man, doll. You shouldn't. I'm not shooting on you. Hey, light hands. Hey, Christmas tree. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor at all. But I'm old woman. Here is Sub-Zero. Now, Plain Zero. Mm. Oh, cookies. Put that cookie down. Now. Yeah. Stick around. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> now, plane zero. <laughs>
ethically um, morally dubious methods that we use and trying to highlight actually you know it might not have been improved of or anything but it was used and yeah know. and this is interesting because this is the reason it won't win best picture is because of all the torture it should, stuff it, that's been slung because it it. it's not good enough but. well yeah yeah but this is why it's not even really in the running let's be honest it's not it's definitely not going to win because of that um but I, I've heard a lot of people say it's pro-torture, which I find really difficult mm. to marry up with my views, having seen it. What I did find is that it was it was honest. Clearly, torture has been used by the US government. Mm. Um, and I think it is completely impossible to unpick what good torture did and what bad torture did. There, there's a scene early on where at the height of some torture, some guy just reels off a load of days that an attack's going to happen because he's just desperate for it to happen. And the bit of information they do get, they get out from treating him more like a human being. Um, but at the same time, it probably isn't massively judgmental of torture. And maybe that's why people think it's pro-torture because it's not specifically condoning it. I find, I find it really weird, though, to hear arguments that this film condones torture because I, I didn't get that from it at all. I didn't either. I mean, I felt the thing that saved this from being American propaganda was the fact that they, they were sort of unflinching in the way they showed the torture. Mm. I thought that was the thing that stopped it just being an America fuck yeah kind of, yeah. You know, well done, we shot Bin Laden, we shot the bad guys. And there were, that was one of the problems with it. a lot of the characters. There was no question of their motivation they, they you know this is a bad guy we're gonna mm. now we're gonna that was it you know it was very much a, a kids cops and robbers kind of mm. you know good bad thing but the, the stuff about torture and, and that there was a couple of bits where they they just put it out in a very documentary style they just put it out there and let you go mm, what do you think of that because mm. you know, and, and there was there was hints of the political stuff you know but it could, they could have they could have quite easily copped out and just cut to um, the the woman's face while you're hearing someone screaming in the mm. background because he's being waterboarded and they didn't actually yeah. show what was going on I don't think it was pro-torture at all I think it was just showing this, no. is, this is what happened this is the way it happens yeah. um, essentially it, we're not saying whether it's yeah. good or bad make your own mind up but this is what happened oh, we all seem to be in agreement mm. on that that's good right um Let's move on from this now then. Jerry, did you watch any other films this week? Um, other than The Hurt Locker. No, The Hurt Locker was, was mediocre. It's probably slightly better than Zero Dark Thirty in that I cared a little bit about some of the characters at some points and some of the explosions were very pretty. But again, mediocre film. I mean, I the problem I have with both these films is why are they in contention for these awards? I mean, it's just, uh, it staggers me. Like, you can't tell me, you know, Skyfall, um, The Dark Knight Rises and Avengers weren't better than Zero Dark Thirty last year. Anne Hathaway as Catwoman was better. She should have been nominated twice if you're going to nominate Jessica Chastain. I, I just can't understand why these things are getting nominated. They're, they're average or average to good films. 
that are quite mediocre, but happen to tell things that the academy thinks are important, but in a way that they're yeah. pushing a play. And that, that's the case. Can you be nominated yeah, twice for, for best actress or actor or best supporting? I don't think so, but I'm just I saying, think... you know, if if you're going to think about the performances last year, off the top of my head, Anne Hathaway could have been nominated twice and it's still, yeah. and Jessica Chastain would have got nowhere near either of those. Do you know what I mean? Um, right, I watched um, Jeffrey Lives at Home, which has been much talked about on this podcast before, so I won't dwell on it too much, but obviously stars... Um, Jason Seagulls and the one out of the uh, Ed Helms. That's the one. Um, <laughs> it is. It is good. It's enjoyable. You can. A lot of people can probably relate. Um, relate to Jeff who lives at home. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an enjoyable film. It's definitely worth a watch. But it's been spoken about by probably the other three, so I won't go into it too much because other people want to talk about what they've been watching this week, don't they, Owen? Uh, yes. Okay, <laughs> I watched um, The Possession this week. Um, it was a film that came out last year, a horror film. Didn't really get much fanfare, but... Um, Documentary on Liverpool it. Football Club. Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it's a, fil- a film about a young girl who buys this antique box at a yard sale um, and it contains a malicious ancient spirit, as they always do, and starts to possess the little girl. Um, and yeah, that's basically the. Is, plot. is this is it is it the one the Dibbox box one? Because it's actually that's like a, the one. Yeah, it's actually like a, on... there's a really creepy and odd true story behind this film, isn't there? Or supposedly yeah, yeah. true story behind this film. Whether you believe what happened to these people is up to you, but they swear it's <laughs> yeah. true. I mean, it might be it might sound familiar to people because of um, you're right. It was sort of based on a true story, apparently, but you know. True stories in so much as there was a box that was put on eBay with a description about how it's haunted this family and all these different things that have happened because of this, this Dibbuck box. And, um, it went viral, got sort of posted around the internet. And so if it sounds familiar and someone says about the Dibbuck box, then yeah. So the, the, the idea for this film came out of that, that sort of viral story. Um, it's interesting because it, it's, if you get sort of a few minutes to read up about it online, there's, Interesting things around it. The, the film was co-produced by Sam Raimi, and he was offered the actual box. So when it, the person who owned it offered to give it to him, and he just Ooh. point blank refused. He didn't want anything to do with it, um, <laughs> which is interesting. And then, of course, there's all these different stories about creepy things that happened during production, and you know, how afterwards all the, the props that were stored in the warehouse all burnt down after, after they finished filming and stuff. So, yeah, but it's you know, it's a, probably most of it's bullshit, but it's worth. Worth the region up on because it's quite. Is it, as, is it as scary as viral story as the rake? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 nothing is. I don't think. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the film itself it got quite negative reviews when it came out because it is basically um, everything you would expect from a possession film, and they just put it into a new, different setting and updated it slightly. So yeah, I mean, the story, although it focuses on this young girl who comes to be possessed by this demon. Um, it's kind of just an average film, really. Um, idea, there, there are some interesting ideas here. They kind of explore some of the more interesting rumours about the Dibbuck box, so the way that it sort of possesses this girl and some of the things that she ends up doing. Visually, it looks good, and it's very creative in that sense. So the, on the poster for the film is a girl uh, who's sort of got a head bent backwards and there's a hand coming out of her mouth grabbing her face. I wanted to see that in the film. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite happen as you see it on the poster, which is a shame because I thought they could have made some quite cool 
sort of graphics out of that. But no, and it, it sort of embodies every sort of trope and idiom of every average possession film that's out there. There's few things in it that you, you know you'll probably even recognise from episodes of X Files. You know, grabs different different stories from different different media out there. But it's some of it's done well. The majority of it's handled quite shoddily. Um, which is a shame. The performances in it aren't too bad, I guess. I quite like Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who has um, probably been quite famous, I think, as playing the comedian from Watchmen. We've talked about the Watchmen on here before. He, so he's really good in it. He plays the father. He's a bit sort of um, a bit stressed from his, his split up with his wife, so he's divorced and his kids are going to all these different things. And he, do, he plays the father role quite well, but not particularly originally, I guess. But he you know, puts in a decent shift. But overall, it's the kind of film, it's worth a watch. Late at night, like if you're struggling for something to do, you're in bed, you've got your laptop, and it's just there for streaming, then do it. I mean, well, I wouldn't expect The Exorcist, um, but it's 90 minutes of a few creepy scenes and, yeah, decent-ish story. Um, excellent. So, uh, just left with James now and what he's been watching this week. Yes, I've got a couple more that I'm finally allowed to break embargo on from my <laughs> day at the UK Cinema Showcase, so I'm going to be quite quick on these. Uh, they're both out on Friday. Uh, the first one is Flight, which is directed by Robert Zemeckis, his first film that isn't blooming motion-captured stuff for a long, long time. Uh, and it's got Denzel Washington uh, a nomination for Best Actor. Um, Denzel Washington plays a guy called Whip Whitaker. He's an airline pilot who miraculously stops his plane from killing everyone on board. It still crashes, but he pulls off ridiculous manoeuvres to save the lives of most of the people on on the flight, uh, becomes a bit of a hero, but it turns out the man is a raging alcoholic uh, and takes drugs, and he was um, very drunk and coked up the moment he saved everyone on the plane. Uh, And the investigation starts uh, into him, and his life starts to unravel. Basically, I didn't like, I'll be honest, I didn't like this film. Um, first 20 minutes of it are very good. The plane crash scene is fantastic. And then you get two hours pretty much of one of the most unsympathetic characters I've ever seen committed to film. Um, and halfway through the film, I'm thinking, I've, I do not care if he gets away with it. I do not, I do not care about this man because it's quite a cliched portrayal of addiction. We've seen addiction portrayed on screen very well in the last few years. Uh, I think most notably, um, Michael Fassbender in Steve McQueen's Shame was a fascinating exploration of addiction. <laughs> this is okay. Yeah, no, Jerry didn't like that. Um... <laughs> But, but this is just really cliched stuff. I read somewhere today, um, someone described Denzel Washington as basically being like um, Captain John Sparrow at times, and that's it. It's it tries to be funny when it shouldn't be, and then it tries to get serious when it should. It's just he he sings really deep. And interestingly, in this film, they used Piers Morgan for like you know kind of news reports to add a bit of realism to it. And this is a film in which Piers Morgan is not the most loathsome screen presence and that's saying a lot that's an, that's an achievement I mean, I know, sure, um, surely he deserves an Oscar nomination if he's making Piers Morgan not the most dislikable person in the film yeah that's a good point actually uh, yeah it's not the worst uh, do you know what? it's kind of like 
10 minutes in, you go, all right, this is Denzel being bad. Okay. And I, I like Denzel. I think Denzel has a great screen presence, but he does seem to have two gears as an actor and there is bad Denzel and there is good Denzel. Is it, is it Denzel uh, as in Denzel only falls on horses, Denzel, or is it Denzel? Uh, it's Denzel Washington. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, that's my, um, that's my Southwest upbringing coming up. Everyone, Denzel. Um, yeah, and it's, it's kind of like training day, but not as good, not as cool, not as charismatic. And actually, just his character in training day was very much an anti hero. Uh, and you kind of was on his side, even though he was a complete bastard. You're not on this guy's side at all. He's a dick. Um, John Goodman's probably the best part of the film, but his character, while he's on screen, you think, oh, this is brilliant. And then you think, well, his character doesn't make much sense. I just like him being on screen because at least it's cheering me up a little bit. So, yeah, I'd say don't bother with Flight. It's not great. Um, watch the first 20 minutes and then sneak into another cinema and watch another film. Um, maybe go and watch Hyde Park on Hudson, which is the other film that's out this week, which has had a bit of a kicking on IMDb. I see it's only 5.7 on IMDb, which is... Yeah, I'm shocked by that because it, it was a nice little film that I watched. It's not going to win Best Film uh, Awards or anything like that. But very quickly, it is the story of a love affair between Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, played by Bill Murray, uh, and his distant cousin. His very distant cousin. Don't worry, there's nothing weird going on here. Um, Daisy. And it is. It centres around a weekend in 1939 when uh, King George and Queen Elizabeth, um, who became the Queen Mum, visited the United States for the first time uh, and it was to try and get America's support for the war effort. Now, the King and Queen, I can't remember who the King's played by. Um, Samuel West, I believe. That's it, Bertha, yes, Samuel West, who's very good in it. Um, and More Elizabeth excited is the Queen. Is Olivia Coleman, and she is incredible in this. She is funny. She is, she's absolutely wonderful. Laura Linney plays Daisy. She is wonderful as well. Bill, Mer- Bill Murray is lovely as FDR. Bit of a sex pest. Um, but you kind of like him. Um, and it's a really nice cast. Olivia Williams plays Eleanor Roosevelt as well. She's brilliant. Um, I saw her most recently in Hannah as the mum of the hippie family in Hannah. She, she's great. It's a load of lovely performances. It's a, it feels a bit, I don't know if it is based on a play. I don't think it is, but it feels like it was based on a play. Uh, if it's got that kind of feel to it, it's very character based, romantic, funny. It's just a really lovely film. I I don't know what to say. I don't want to say too much more about it. It's based over a weekend. It's one of those limited storytelling things, but it's 90 minutes. Uh, and I far preferred it to flight. So. That would be my tip for the films that are out on Friday. Quick question, James. Yes. Uh, Olivia Colman, I would go so far as to say she is the best British actress alive at the moment. She's fantastic. Do you think this is going to get her big roles in Hollywood films? Because she does deserve them. I hope so. I, I agree with you. I think she, for the last two or three years, she has been the most consistent um, brilliant actress in Britain. Uh, fantastic range. Um, I would like to think that it would do for her what, say, The Remain of the Day did for uh, Emma Thompson back in 93, I think it was. I, I do think she is in that kind of category, and I, I hope it does lead to more things for her, um, if that's what she wants. I don't know. Maybe she wants to stay in England, just do nice little films over here. But, yeah, um, she is fantastic in this. She's genuinely brilliant in this. So, um 
I, before we move on, I, do, I did just want to clear up a bit of trivia for you. Um, in 1930, both Greta Garbo and Norma Shearer were nominated twice for Best Actress for different films at the Oscars. So it has happened before. Um, and one of them won it. Norma Shearer won it for The Divorcee. But since then, um, there's been a number of occasions where people have been nominated for Best um, actor or actress and best supporting actress within the same year for different films, but no one's been nominated twice in the same category. So just clearing up, yeah, for the listeners at home, clearing up a little bit of mm. trivia for them. Fact bombs, if anything. <laughs> Most recently, it was Kate Blanchett in 2007 for uh, Elizabeth the Golden Age and I'm Not There. And Al Pacino won it uh, in 92 for Scent of Woman and was nominated for Glengarry Glen Ross for best supporting actor as well. It's weird, he's only in that for about 10 minutes, isn't he? He is good. He's though. good in it, though. He's he is very good in it. Yeah. Um, right then, so, um, on to Corridor of Praise. James, take the helm. Okay, so yes, the Corridor of Praise, the Fell Critics' very own Hall of Fame. Uh, every month or so, you know, we'll induct someone into our Corridor of Praise, and our only conditions are that person cannot have won an Oscar for their main job in the movies and they have to have a career spanning at least 20 years uh it is someone that all four of us have agreed to being inducted in and most likely all four of us are a fan of uh, as well um so it's a, it's a very high honor and for a lot of actors and actresses and directors and writers it may well be the only honor they ever win just because of the type <laughs> of person we're talking about here um but I'd like to hand over to Jerry, who's written a beautifully heartfelt introduction to this this week's inductee. It's, it's, it's a special place in my heart for them, that's why. Gather round, listeners. Stick a log on the fire. <laughs> Get a glass of port. It's summery time. You can sit on the carpet if you want, pretend like an old man in an armchair reading off a book. Oh, I, I have this in a leather-bound book, in your head at least. Not really. Schlag. Austria, like my pronunciation? No? The yeah, Second World War is ending. Aurelia Jadbury, a clerk in her early 20s, whose husband was killed just eight months after their wedding, is working at her desk when she spots a tall, good-looking man in his late 30s walking past. He's wearing the uniform of the gendarmerie, Austria's rural police, and she likes a man in uniform. Over time, they talk through the window. She works out when his shift is, so she's always at her desk. His name is Gustav, and when they marry late in 1945, he is 38 and she is 23. Good lad. <laughs> he is assigned to Thal, a tiny village, and they live in a simple stone house at the top of a hill, a hundred yards from a ruined old castle, on the single unpaved road in the village. There is no plumbing, no shower, no flushing toilet, and the nearest well is a quarter of a mile away. I, I was on board until that. <laughs> Sounds like hell. <laughs> they make do, Steve, they make do. <laughs> Scrape by on his meagre wage through hard work and thrift, an ethic they will instill in their children. They quickly have a son, Meinhard, and struggle along despite the widespread famine in newly occupied Austria. In 1947, with the famine still ongoing and at its worst, they have another son. In this small, impoverished stone house in rural Austria, one of the 20th century's greatest stars has just been born. Gustav and Aurelia name him Arnold, and their big, broad genetics and hard-working nature will combine to make Arnold Schwarzenegger one of the most influential men in modern American culture. Both boys are encouraged by their father to frequently take part in sports, 
particularly football. He knew, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing for stuff. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you'll mention this later, but isn't Austria's national football stadium named the Arnold Schwarzenegger Stadium? I don't know, but that's an excellent fact. Or, or what, at least, or at least one of the. <laughs> Team with the stadium in Graz. Yeah, yeah, Sturm Sturm Graz. Interrupt such a beautiful storytelling. But he withdrew permission because they didn't like the fact that he um he allowed someone to die on death row. But we can come on to that. It's an interesting story. (laughs) Not as interesting as Jerry's. Yeah, Jerry, carry on. As the children grow up, they start to do sit-ups to earn their breakfast. This is a genuine true story, as well as doing a lot of chores. At fifteen, Al decides to take up weightlifting over football. Attended a gym in nearby Graz. There you go, Steve. That's where the stadium is. There we are. The dedication his harsh father has drilled into him leads him to break into the gym when it's closed on weekends. At 18, he serves in the army as part of his military service. During basic training, he goes AWOL to take part in the Junior Mr. Europe bodybuilding contest. The week he spends in military prison is made worthwhile by him winning the competition. In 1966, he takes a plane for the first time to go to London for the Mr. Universe competition. He comes second, but a judge spots his potential and invites him to live with his family in London to train him. Oh, yeah. Jimmy Savile. A year later, age 20, and with a slowly improving grasp of English, Arnold wins the Mr. Universe title, the first of three. He moves to Munich and goes to business school, and he was switched on even then, recognising that his Mr. Universe titles are the way to achieve his long-held ambition of moving to the US. In 1968, he moves to L.A., training at Gold's Gym and embarking on the path to being an American legend. He wins the first of seven Mr. Olympia titles in 1970, but his brother Meinhard dies in a drink-driving accident in 1971, followed by his father a year later. Arnold doesn't attend his funeral. By this stage, he's had his first film role in Hercules in New York. And over to James. Yes. Of course, it's the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'd like to... Welcome him to our corridor of praise. Um, well, you're not going yeah, to tell him no, um, are you? If, no, he, t- no, if he turns exactly. off at the door, you wouldn't say, no, you're not coming in. No. Um, and yeah, I think Jerry has beautifully summed up about the first uh, quarter of Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography there, uh, which I'm currently trying to read at the moment. I, and and he, he, he hit that nail on the head there. It, Arnie is, he's got such a work ethic and... Um, he is where he is through pure dint of hard work. And you've got to admire someone like that who has put their mind to achieve so much. He, he, he holds the rec- he still holds the record for most um, bodybuilding titles. A major bodybuilder. He's got 13 of the world titles he won at some point. That's before he even became an actor. That's pretty incredible. Um, now, have we all seen Pumping Iron? Oh, yes. Yeah, possibly one of his greatest roles. Um, But that led, you know, obviously Pumping Iron, one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. And it led to his first big role in Hollywood, which would be Conan the Barbarian, uh, followed by Conan the Destroyer. But I'll I'll hand over to someone else to talk about the Conan films, because I think they're clearly a massive break for him. But I, to my shame, I've still not seen a Conan film. Oh, that is disgraceful. <laughs> Call yourself a man. He's he's reprising the role, apparently, next year. He's going to be Conan once more. Yeah, exciting. Mm. I'll have to watch them before then, obviously. But, um, yeah, so w- w- what what did people see in him in Conan, then? Someone tell me what's so 
brilliant about Conan led to this fantastic career? Where do I begin? <laughs> you make him sound like Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> well, Gene Arnie. Do you know what I mean? When you think yeah. of Arnie, and he does this sort of over-the-top action hero where he's totally convincing that he could break you in half with his bare hands, and he's he's you know he's quite intense when he wants to be as well. I mean, you think about the late some of the latest stuff. He's very intense in some of his roles. And as Conan, he he's just he's just embodies the role really well. And the the line about you know I want to see my enemies driven before me, rape their women and kill their children and all sorts of stuff. I can't remember the exact line, but it's along those lines. And he's he, he's brilliant as that character. He's he's a proper warrior. And he just brings so much career. He's got such stage presence. It's just brilliant. Yeah. Mm. It is the good. perfect role to sort of introduce someone to, to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think there's just so many quotable lines from it. Yeah. It's just yeah, it's just one of those films. Um, You've got to uh, see it sometime, James. I will, I'll, I'll, I'll make it my mission in the next few months to watch those. Um, they then led to... He, he must have many iconic roles, but there can't be a more iconic role than his role as the Terminator. Um, Owen, I know you're a massive fan of the Terminator. What's what's so incredible about him in that then? Um, well, it's just hard to see anyone else doing what he does in that film. Uh, yeah. I watched Last Action Hero earlier, and there's a there's a poster in there which shows Sylvester Stallone. Yes. <laughs> just does not look right at all. There is only one man who can be the Terminator, and that yeah. is Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's just his sort of cold, cool delivery, in, especially in the first film, and then in the second film, obviously, it's a bit lighter and a bit more sort of almost jovial at times. But, yeah, the, the, the original Terminator, he's just so menacing without actually saying much. Yeah. I think it's that sort of machine-like delivery that, make, that made him such a cool character. Just and go- then in the second one, I think, because he has that sort of machine delivery as you say and he is you know one of the criticisms of him is always that he's robotic but he uses that and he's so charismatic in the second mm. Terminator 2 definitely he brings so much humour playing on the fact that everyone says that he's wooden and robotic you know but he is I think I was right he's hugely charismatic a lot of people could be a could pretend to be the Terminator in the first film but you genuinely believe him um and there, there is a genuine skill there, and also it led to the brilliant thing that um, a it led to him his catchphrase of "I'll be back," which is probably his most famous catchphrase. Uh, but of course, the disagreement over whether it should be "I'll be back" or "I'll come back," which is <laughs> a lot. Which I think that was Schwarzenegger wanted it to be "I'll come back" because it was more grammatically correct or something like that. And it was James Cameron who convinced him to say "I'll be back." Um, he then went on to do Red Sonja, which, from what I, again, this is another. I've not seen Red Sonja, but looking at it, it looks like Conan the Barbarian in all but name. Is that has anyone it's else? Spin off, I think. Right. Okay. If I remember correctly, but he's not called Conan. <laughs> it's one of those films I've recorded a few times because it's on like Five USA quite yeah. frequently, and I always end up deleting it and not bothering with it. Yeah. Not but actually then, seen it. Then he went on to do. Oh, I think my second favourite army film, um, and one of the best action films ever, Commando, as John Matrix. Um, yeah, the film where he doesn't have a lot of skills. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of money, but what he does have is a certain particular set of skills. Yes. And he's going to find yes. the people who've taken his Yes, water. <laughs> yeah. exactly. He would, 
he would kick Neeson's ass. <laughs> Neeson does not look like he does not have the physique of an action hero. No, uh, yeah, that's that's another thing. Although I, I quite Neeson is of an era, and this is another thing actually. This is and we're now talking about back then an era where action heroes had to look like this. Mm. Uh, and action heroes can take many different shapes and forms. Like the fact that Liam Neeson has carved out a career as an action hero still confuses me. But when I watch the original Taken, or when I watch The Grey, I do believe it is a more kind of realistic... Um, and the fact that the the remake of Total Recall had Colin Firth rather than... Oh, Colin, Colin Farrell. Colin, yeah, oh God, yeah, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> That woman seems to have three tits. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be incredible. All right, yeah, um, yeah. Arnie is Arnie was the the body, the big action hero about that. And Commando is one of those where the film just takes. It, it, I think it's the first of his films where he doesn't take himself seriously. I think it's the first time you start to see a little bit of self awareness about an Arnie film. The uh, the the one liners become knowing one line. Uh, to me, it's the first film where you know he's got those great one liners. Like um, my wife's one that she tweeted in earlier today at Kate Darman. She said that her favourite one is um, my friend, leave my friend. He's dead tired when he's on the you know because he's literally just killed him. It's like yeah, it's good pun, Arnie. Good work. Uh, it's also got the classic one about I said I'd kill you last. I lied. Um, <laughs> And it's the first Arnie film where he starts to get to play with comedy. And I know from reading the autobiography, he is very, very convinced of his comedic powers. Um, I don't know if you've got that far, Jerry. Yeah, he, I mean, he the thing about Arnie is the great skill that he has in the 80s is that he realises that he's got all this criticism and people say, you know, he can't speak English very well and he's wooden, he's got a strong accent, etc. And I think in his first role as... Um, Hercules in New York, they had to actually dub the voice back in over him because he was so unintelligible uh, with his accent. But actually, he realised he can use this to his advantage. And he realised yeah. that he can make comedy out of it. And he can, he can carve out his niche. You know, Stallone does real serious uh, action films. And he can do action films that are still heavy-hitting and violent. And, you know, he's got a massive physical presence. But you can still bring a bit of humour to that. And it's kind of, it fits perfectly with the way those films were made in the late 80s, you know, you think about it. And, and really, Die Hard wouldn't have been Die Hard as we know it if Arnie hadn't started doing that with Commander. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah um, definitely. Just one point that Jerry brought up earlier about his presence. He's one of only two people that have got such screen presence that they never have to change their accent, never have to do an accent. That's him and Sean Connery. That's very true, yeah. I've never really even just, thought just, about n- Just like never that. even think... Right, I'm not playing a Scotsman or an Austrian. Yeah. I'd best yeah. try and put on an American. Nah, no, I can't be bothered. I can put yeah. myself without it, and, let's and, be honest. And most of the films don't even apologise for it. Yeah. He, he generally is usually an American man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the start of an amazing one. And just looking at IMD, you've got Terminator in 84, Commando in 85, uh, Raw Deal in 86, and then he goes on to do Predator in 87, um... The Running Man in '87, uh, and then you know, and we may well come, we may well talk about those two at the end because I'm going to ask about people's favourite Arnie films, and I know Predator's definitely going to get a mention there. Um, and then he really gets to cut loose with his comedy with uh, Twins in <laughs> what, what do we think of his? Let's round up all his comedy into one little package. Okay. Now, what do we make of his comic roles? Twins, Junior, 
and and jingle all the way jingle all the way as well what do we make um, of those family comedy roles that he took on arguably I... Mr Freeze and Batman and Robin <laughs> yes <laughs> just about to say that he's I... the best thing in that film by a long way I quite I, I, I quite I like a... Kindergarten Cop and jingle all the way I've not I've, I've not seen I've not seen twins or junior for a long time so I couldn't comment on them Junior's the only one he would have Golden Globe for. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> His role in Junior. No. Yeah. Best comedy performance, wasn't it? That is that is good knowledge there. Oh, that's a lovely fact. He's won a Golden <laughs> Globe for. Oh, d- d- actually, I've not seen Junior. Oh, I've, I've, I kind of didn't want to. <laughs> No, come on, man! It's Arnie pregnant. What? What more? Can I, <laughs> I, know, I know. I need to. I need to rectify that. I, I do love Kindergarten Cop. And actually, you think Kindergarten Cop, um, twins, um, of the ones I've seen here, Mister Freeze in Batman and Robin, and Jingle All the Way. He's a genuinely engaging. He's better to me, in my opinion, than a lot of other actors who are known for their comedy. Uh, for example. Adam Sandler in recent years. I'd rather watch Arnie in a comedy than Adam Sandler, for example. Um, a number of Jim Carrey mugging performances. He's actually a more nuanced comedian, uh, comic actor, than some people who do that for a day job. Well, there's, there's something very self-aware about the way Arnie does humorous roles. You know, I think he gets a, he's got a bad rep and he's become a bit of a stereotype, you know, but actually, when he does the comedy role, he's he's very good, you know, and he knows exactly that he's speaking in a ludicrous mm. Austrian accent. He knows that, that you know, is, he's not Al Pacino. Yeah. But he, he's still, he, what he has, he makes the very best of, and he does it very well. And I think, you know, you've got to commend him for that throughout all yeah. his different roles. I'm going to be and a little bit cynical, though, and suggest that I think it's kind of what most action film stars try to strive for eventually, comedy roles. I just think they pay more. I think you get more money and from the box office. It's easier. Yeah. I just think, you know, The Rock did it. Um... Oh, yeah. And The Rock actually, to my mind, is the modern Arnie um, in that he is clearly a massive physical presence, can handle himself like that. Um, he's got a lot of charisma and he can do the comedy and he can do the comedy better than Arnie can as well. But um, I, I do think it's a genuine string to Arnie's bow. I, I, think, he, I think he has a genuine talent and he has a, a level of comic timing which Stallone doesn't have um, Jean-Claude Van Damme doesn't have uh, other <laughs> Steven Seagal definitely doesn't no, have definitely. Um, and, and I think he it's allowed him to continue, if he hadn't taken the break for political reasons I do think he would have been able to continue acting long before long after his action star status had an expiry date kind of thing well i think uh, the break came at just the right time for his yeah. sort of comedy career really yeah. um yes well, his film career in general he just you know if he if he'd have carried on he probably would have ended up being one of those actors that you just think i just can't watch him anymore because it's too sad to see that they've ended up declining into just something opposite i guess to sylvester stallone where suddenly mm. he's making some quite good films Mm. Um, or at least you know he's showing that he's capable of still writing good films or yeah Arnie went through that period didn't he where towards the end of the 90s he made action films which didn't have that self-awareness very serious action films which were generally a bit poor you had got End of Days The Sixth Day and Collateral Damage 
And then Terminator 3, which wasn't great either. Yeah, I mean, Collateral Damage was just such a boring film. And that's the... It was, I think it's, it was Commando done by a firefighter, really, wasn't it? I mean... Yeah. But without any of the wit yeah, and, the, it, yeah. and the winging it charm <laughs> that Commando had. Uh, I, I generally, I think his best, his best action film, his last good action film would have been um, True Lies. Uh, I think Eraser's half decent. Eraser's not bad. Oh yeah, Eraser. Yeah, no, I'd forgotten about it. You are luggage. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's true. But I think his last really good one uh, was True Lies uh, and Last Action Hero uh, the year before that, which is the most self-referential of all of his works. Uh, and written by Shane Black, who did Lethal Weapon, and I think yeah, that's. That's great. You know, I think Owen makes a really good point. He he took a break at exactly the right time before people got tired of him and before he spent all of his credit with the audience. And now people are excited about him being back. And I think that's fantastic. And he's got a load in in, in line. And, mm-hmm. well, kind of that brings us on nicely, actually. Owen, you've seen him back in action. Um, I've what seen do you him, think? seen him back, yes. I went to see The Last Stand on its opening day in a tiny little cinema, which was a shame because there were about sort of 10 people in total that went to see it on its opening evening. That made me a bit sad. Um, mm. But, yeah, it's as a film, okay, it's all right. As an action film junkie, as I, I am, I can't deny that, I liked it. I think there, there were problems with it that maybe other people could if you're nitpicking with it, you know, the, the character's really just cliched. And the, Apart from Arnie, I think Arnie puts in a really good performance, actually. He is by far and away the best thing about it. But every, every, everyone else around him is kind of a bit generic and bland, and it's a real shame. You know, you've got the comedy relief character, you've got the, the, the bit of a bad boy character, you've got the woman who's a bit actually quite strong character. And, even the bad guy, it's just really kind of t- typical. But there's a story which is about just an old cop. He's in this quiet little town on the border between Mexico and America. There's a drug cartel, a, drug, a gang just trying to get through to get to Mexico. One of them's just escaped the FBI. He has to stop them. It's perfect, you know. For, for what it is, it is just the exact role that Arnie should have been taken. And, you know, the fact that it's directed by... Um, the, uh, the guy who did I Saw the Devil, uh, I've forgotten his name, Ji Woon Kim, who uh, is just brilliant with visuals. It, it works because the, in some action films, you kind of get it where, um, you know, not to, to use it as a yardstick, but Transformers, okay? Mm. The action in that, you cannot make out what's happening in some of the fight yeah. scenes. Yeah. In this, it is just so smooth. Everything's really slick. There isn't a, a camera angle in the film where you can't see exactly what you're supposed to be seeing. And the fact that it's done with Arnie and there's a, a sort of scene towards the end where it's... I'm, I'm, it's not a spoiler. There was a showdown between Arnie as the good cop and the drug guy as, as the sort of the villain of the piece. And it's a sort of showdown between the two of them. It's perfect. It's, it's quite sort of self-aware. It knows that Arnie is this older guy now and he's not really the young commando sort of John Matrix character. He's, he's this sort of older guy and he just wants a quiet life. It's perfect. It's really just it captures everything that this film should be. So as a film in its own right, yeah, it's a little bit sort of cliched and it's perhaps slightly unambitious with some, with some of the things it attempts. But who cares, really? Uh, it's just great to see Arnie back and just doing exactly 
what he's best at, really. It's not stupid comedy. It's not boring action film. It's just, yeah, exactly what Arnie should be doing. So it made me happy. <laughs> Good. Well, that's nice to hear. And, um, yeah, he's got a, f- a few other films. Like we say, we've got Legend of Conan. He's coming back to play Conan. There's rumours of Terminator 5. Hopefully, we do see a few more good Arnie films before before the man retires. I'm I'm glad he's come back. Yes. Uh, right, to round I would it like up, to say, just so before we, I would yeah. like to see him work again with um, with Jiwoo and Kim. I think they could oh, forge okay. something quite. Well. It, it it reminds me a little bit because it's Jiwoo and Kim's first sort of mm. Western film, um, and it sort of reminds me of you know like um, Hard Target with Van Damme. You know, it's oh, okay. It's kind of just like. This could be the film where it pushes Jim and Kim into sort of mainstream cinema. It would be good if he could work together with Arnold Schwarzenegger instead of doing what, um, uh, what's his name, John Woo did, and sort of yeah. after Hard Target stopped working with Van Damme. If they could still keep together and keep that partnership, they could do something really quite exciting in the future. Oh, good. Um, yeah, so to round it off then. Uh, I just want to hear everyone's favourite Arnie film and your favourite ever Arnie one-liner. And I've got a few people who uh, from Twitter uh, and the forum and things that I'll talk about as well, but from you guys first. Um, I think my favourite Arnie film is uh, Commando. It's just action film perfection. Nice. Uh, and your favourite line, Steve? Go on. <laughs> I, I honestly deliver it Arnie style. I honestly don't think I could pick one. There's there's just far too many that are just brilliant. Jerry, um, Total Recall for me. Gotta be Total Recall. Nice choice. Nice choice. Um, yeah, Total Recall. And your line? Um, there's a lot. There's a lot. Welcome to the party is is, is pretty pretty iconic. I'll, I'll, yes. I'll go for that one. See you at the party, Richter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Owen, it's got to be Predator. It's one of those films that I just I could watch every day. Um, my favourite line though is, is what I was struggling as well. It's got to be something iconic. If I chose one of the sort of more sort of lines that not isn't quite so famous, then I'd be lying. It's got to be something like Hasta la Vista, baby. Just the delivery of it is just yeah fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah. My mine is also Predator. Um, yes. it's just the perfect action film it's mm-hmm. it's and it's one of those films that when it gets shown late on channel 4 and I turn on I watch to the end regardless of what time I need to be up in the morning I cannot stop myself watching it which is which is the sign of a truly great film it in is. my opinion and and my favourite one would be I said I'd kill you last alive <laughs> uh, when he kills uh, Sully in, in Commando um, absolutely brilliant um, a few others that we got um, so yeah Kate Diamond said her favourite line was don't disturb my friend he's dead tired um, uh, two pink peonies uh, responded and said her favourite line was who is your daddy and what does he do um, from the classic <laughs> kindergarten cop um, also, uh, Munchkin365 on Twitter also said uh, I lied as well, which I think is that, that's, that's quite a classic one of the just below. Obviously, our, we've got I'll be back and things like that. Um, and someone else, um, oh yes, uh, oh, the Terminator um, at NBC UK said the Terminator is his absolute favourite, which is. Uh, but he also really liked Ice to See You from Madam Robin. <laughs> so um, 
yeah, a lot of love for Arnie today. That was the most love we've had on Twitter for a little while, mm. just because you just mentioned Arnie, and people are like, yeah, Arnie, everyone loves Arnie films, and anyone who doesn't is weird, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I think that, and the fact that the man will never win an Oscar saddens me. Um, so he's just going to have to make do with being put up on our corridor of praise. He's, he's, um, rightly so. He is responsible for the manliest moment in the history of cinema when he does Dylan, you son of a bitch, in front of him. That's just such a manly <laughs> film, just in general, isn't it? It's just such a fucking macho film. It's incredible. <laughs> did you watch the documentary, James? If we did I, it oh, I didn't. I'm going to watch it this week when I watch Predator again because I got all excited about it. I just couldn't find time this weekend. I had to the watch stories it. about him and Jesse Ventura just competed to see who's got the biggest muscles. Oh, <laughs> just oh, just oh, fantastic. Oh, <laughs> and they became good friends and everything. Um, interesting, I was just doing a bit of research. He was meant to be, uh, Arnie was meant to be in the Planet of the Apes remake originally. Um, and he was also going to be in a James Cameron version of um, I Am Legend at one point in the early 90s before um, they decided to do uh, True Lies. Uh, the man's had so many near parts as well. Oh, we just love Arnie, don't we? He's, he's also the inspiration for Rainier Wolfcastle and McBain. Yes. Which, yes. Is, <laughs> which is credit enough. Uh, definitely, definitely. Um. I believe that's all for for this week, then. We've got something to play you out with. Before that, what's up next week? Okay, next week. Uh, well, on the website, there's a, there's already up, there's a great piece on the Queen of Versailles uh, documentary about a family in the credit crunch, which John the Journo put up there for us. Um, and that's on, um, ch- that's on TV this week. Um, few more reviews and things like that. We've got Jerry's 2002 Decade in Film going up on the site this week as well. And then next week's podcast, uh, we've got it's the return of Triple Bill. We've not had a Triple Bill for ages, it seems. Um, I think Christmas Triple Bill was our last one. So next week it's Triple Bill and uh, in honour of Sly Stallone's Bullet to the Head being in cinemas next week, we are going to our top three actors or actresses who we think need to make a comeback. Who would we love to see back on screen making a big not comeback? A, not off the top three actors or actresses who we want to see take a bullet to the head. <laughs> no, that, that's a very different triple bill. Mm. Um, and we've probably mentioned a lot of those people earlier today. Steven Seagal. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, it's actors and actresses that we really want to see make a comeback. So, yeah. Um, and then the week after that, we've got a main review of Wreck-It Ralph. So, yeah, that's the next couple of weeks on the podcast. Excellent. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to everyone who's contributed to this podcast. And thanks to Kevin McLeod for incompetech.com for the music. Here's a little something to end with today. When you're going to kill me. Now! Boy, you talk. Funny. Well, that's easy for you to say. You got a lot of nerve showing your face around here, Hauser. Look who's talking. You're fired. Let off some steam venom. Hey! What the hell did you do to him, man? I did nothing. The pavement was his enemy. Chill out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a pervert. I just was looking for trouble, man, doll. You shouldn't. I'm not shooting on you. Hey, light hands. Hey, Christmas tree. It might be a tumor. It's not a tumor.
Not a tumor at all. But I'm all woman. Here is Sub Zero. Now, Plain Zero. Mm. Oh, this Put that cookie down. Now. Yeah. Stick around. Fantastic. Now, Plain Zero. Thank <laughs> you.